the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The emancipation. Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. Anarchism, Video Activism, and State Repression. Chris Robay. I've spent the past 20 years or so studying various forms of media activism. This stretches back to my work on U.S. left film criticism in the 1930s to my more recent research regarding digital media activism. The important thing about such media activism is not only that it represents important interventions in offering counter-representations and ideas that imagine a more equitable world, but also that these very forms of activism are direct action practices that create the change they want to see. Media activism, in other words, needs to be thought of as a verb as an intervention in activist practice, not only as a noun, a thing to be studied. Much of my work researching media activism is to capture the processes that make it possible and how it further enables collective action. To understand video activism at the present moment requires us to briefly return to its origins since these origins leave their traces on current media activism. The rise of video activism during the late 1960s and early 1970s emerges from a global moment of resistance where three forces significantly impact this form of activism. They are the ecology movement, women's liberation, and a resurgence of anarchism. The ecology movement rethinks the spaces in which we live and the technologies that occupy such spaces. It imagines less hierarchical and bureaucratic spaces that confine communities and individuals for more open flexible, and enabling forms. Video technology, as opposed to film and television and other forms of mass communication, was viewed as an alternative type of media that embodies an ecological point of view, where small groups could yield such technology, and participants engaged in it could immediately play back its results to review if they liked what they saw. If not, they would simply rewind a tape and record over it until everyone was comfortable with the results. The media could accommodate itself to the community's needs and wishes, not the other way around. Women's liberation <coughs> was challenging gendered norms and patriarchal control at all levels. It was in many ways searching for a new language where women from various backgrounds could express their desires, needs, and solutions that would challenge a world defined mainly by and for white heterosexual men. Small media played a key role in such struggles where women's quest for self-determination could be voiced and enacted. Offset printing allowed for cheap publications of newsletters, flyers, and community papers for various marginalized groups. Women's voices bloomed within such publications like Off Our Backs, It Ain't Me Babe, and Chrysalis, and they took over new left publications that nonetheless had sexist bents like The Rat, a prominent underground paper within New York City. The same held true for the new video technology that wasn't burdened with a history of sexism like that found within commercial television and cinema industries. Many women saw such technology as a key toward self-determination as videos like The Politics of Intimacy explored female sexual and emotional desires and needs, not unlike what was being done in various consciousness-raising groups. 
Women created their own video collectives as well as participated equally in other groups, though it must be stated that much of this work was predominantly geared towards white women's interest and concerns as they were the ones who had main access to such technology, at least in the early years. In regards to anarchism, the scholar Andrew Cornell has shown how the 1940s marked a transitional moment for U.S. anarchism as it moved away from labor organizing towards pacifism and addressing more cultural concerns of middle-class, mostly college-age adherents. Video activism, unfettered with the cultural biases of other forms of technology and relatively mobile and easy to use, played a significant role among the counterculture where such anarchism thrived. As a result, much video activism subscribed to various anarchist-inflected practices like consensus-based decision-making or direct action by making alternative media that better reflected youth in other marginalized groups' interest. Though, yet again, such access towards video technology mainly remained within the global north and among white groups during these early years. This, this historical background is important to keep in mind when considering the various anarchist-inflected practices that still inhabit various strains of video activism. Yet, along with this growing accessibility of such technology among diverse communities who could use it in pursuit of their own self-determination and a better world, the state increasingly mobilized such technology for its own purposes to maintain the status quo and suppress any radical challenges to the existing power structures. Platform capitalism, or what is often referred to as quote-unquote social media, is a perfect example of the ways in which capitalism the state have inhabited digital media to data mine and surveil all of its users. Sashana Zuboff, a Harvard Business School professor, who once championed the tech sector as a harbinger of the new economy, has now realized that it has mainly produced surveillance capitalism where the user becomes a product for the technology, responding to increasing dopamine fixes for likes and attention. There's nothing inherent within the technology itself, of course, that yields such results. Instead, the technology and its uses are structured by the biases of a consumer-driven, hierarchical, proprietary, and hyper-individualized worldview that has its origins in settler colonialism. Needless to say, Anarchist forms of digital media activism nonetheless attempt to resist capitalist and state capture of their practices. Although most groups feel the need to engage with platform capitalism in terms of mobilizing and amplifying their messages, they also provide alternative platforms outside of platform capitalism, whether it be the Mazarin Collective, producing its own independent website to produce 858 hours of archival footage of the Egyptian Revolution, or Unicorn Riot producing independent reporting on its standalone website that one can then link to other platform capitalist sites. The state takes such challenges seriously, and we can see this no better than looking back to the 2008 Republican National Convention held in Minneapolis to exemplify one of the key moments where the state explicitly attacked anarchist-based independent media making that has only intensified in the subsequent years. At the time, Republican presidential hopeful John McCain teamed up with Sarah Palin, a crackpot governor of Alaska who served as a mild dress rehearsal for the far-right lunacy that has a chokehold on the Republican Party of the present within the United States. A young upstart Democratic hopeful named Barack Obama would soon shellac the two during the November elections. But back in early September, when the RNC was held, McCain and Palin represented a toxic mix of old and new guards of Republican leadership. 
Ever since the shutdown of the World Trade Organization meeting in Seattle in 1999 by protesters, the state had dedicated increasing tax-funded resources for security at such events. $50 million was spent on security for the 2008 RNC, including surveillance cameras, riot gear, and over time to pay the police to name a few things. In resistance to the RNC, a group of college-aged individuals created a website named the RNC Welcoming Committee that provided a hub for people to coordinate resistance activities to the four-day event. The police claimed that they became alarmed over the inflammatory rhetoric of the website and a satiric video that presented balaclava-clad anarchists preparing for the RNC, such as tossing a Molotov cocktail into a barbecue grill to fire it up. But in actuality, state authorities are manufacturing emergency of their own, such as using an FBI informer named Brandon Darby to enlist two naive young activists to drive them up from Austin, Texas and make Molotov cocktails for the event. Perhaps most notoriously, the police preemptively raided a series of houses and apartments the weekend before the convention. Six members of the RNC Welcome Committee were arrested and raids disrupted the work of independent media collectives like Eyewitness Video and the Glass Beads Collective that were in town to document the convention. The targeting of independent media continued during the convention week with Amy Goodman, host of progressive show Democracy Now! being the most prominent arrestee. When she questioned police chief John Harrington as to how the press was supposed to operate under such conditions, he replied, quote, by embedding reporters in our mobile field force, end quote, a tactic imported from the war in Afghanistan that was used to neutralize negative reporting on an unjustified and unpopular war. When the dust had settled at the end of the convention, over 800 people were arrested. Tellingly, 578 people eventually had their charges dismissed or declined, revealing that the arrests were used more to curb dissents than based upon stopping any viable threat. Eight people associated with the creation of the RNC Welcoming Committee website were arrested under trumped-up charges of domestic terrorism, despite not having any evidence against them engaging in illegal activity. This was not the first time the state had arrested people creating a website to facilitate activism. Four years prior, in 2004, seven animal rights activists of the Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty Campaign, also known as the Shack Campaign, were indicted by a New Jersey grand jury for violating the 1992 Animal Enterprise Protection Act. The Shack website figured heavily against them, despite dubious evidence that any of those involved in running the website were engaged in illegal activity. They became known as the Shack Seven. Those arrested in Minneapolis for the RNC Welcoming Committee were dubbed the RNC Eight. The RNC Eight used sequences from the co-produced film by Twin Cities Indian Media and Glass Bead Collective named Terrorizing Dissent to tour around Minnesota and other locations in their defense, portraying themselves as young, likable idealists caught in the maw of a paranoid state and aggressive policing. This was to counter the cops and the commercial news' portrayal of them as unwashed anarchists living within filthy conditions, more than willing to lob uh, stones and bottles of urine at the police despite not having done so. This is a common tactic employed by the state. Conjure racist, bestial imagery around protesters to discredit their movement and undermine their legitimacy, dehumanize them at all costs. The RNC-8 toured around for two years with the film and at other events before finally having their day in court in 2010. All terrorism charges were dropped. Two members had all additional charges dropped. Another person pled guilty to a gross misdemeanor and served 91 days in jail. 
The remaining four pled guilty to the misdemeanor charges with no time served and receiving between one and two years probation with some community service. But ultimately, the prolonged legal proceedings fostered disillusionment, resentment, and distrust as eight young activists were entangled in a legal system designed to temporarily smother social movements. Fast forward to the top stop cop city movement of the present moment, surging in the streets and forests of Atlanta. Defend the Forest created an Instagram account on April 24, 2021, to oppose the construction of a 150-acre Atlanta police training center in the Wheelani Forest, located next to a working-class black neighborhood. Perhaps most remarkably, a coalition of anarchists, local interfaith leaders, community activists, and concerned citizens have increasingly galvanized the resistance against resources being funneled towards policing at the expense of local community and needed resources. The state did not take lightly to such developments. By early 2023, five activists faced domestic terrorism charges, three bail fund organizers faced money laundering charges, and 61 activists have indictments leveled against them for violating the state's racketeering influence and corruption organization law, also known as a RICO law, commonly used against the mob. At an anarchist book fair I attended in Asheville, North Carolina in August 2023, the forest defenders held a panel where they recounted the struggle and belatedly realized that they needed to engage in a public relations campaign to fight back against all the negative publicity and trumped up charges lobbed at them. After the talk, I spoke with some of the forest defenders about the RNC8 going through a similar issue. They mentioned they were in touch with some of its members discussing strategies, but internally within the movement debates rage regarding the use of video activism. Is it a, more of a hindrance to the movement by potentially making activists self-surveil their actions and providing incriminating evidence to authorities despite people's faces being blurred? Or can it be used to assist with mobilization to foster a solidarity, not only in its distribution, but also in its production? If anything, there are no easy answers to these questions regarding video activism and digital media in general. It serves as a double-edged sword that enables as much as it undermines social movements. The far right is discovering this as well, as January 6th protesters continue to be rounded up and charged three years after the incident, mostly based on their own video footage they provided authorities with by stupidly live-streaming their involvement and posting them prominently on various websites. Their white privilege and sense of entitlement blinded them to the realities of how their own media production abetted their own surveillance by the very authorities that they attempted to overthrow. But rather than making blanket statements about the benefit and limitations of video activism, a more nuanced approach needs to take place where strategies and tactics of such digital-based media activism must be assessed in relation to both short-term events and long-term goals. To deny the importance of such video activism would sequester social movements' ability to assist with outreach, solidarity building, and community organizing. On the other hand, to view such media activism as a panacea would most likely short-circuit any sustainable campaign and directly play into the state's increasing surveillance of such, such technologies. One has to wrestle with these contradictory tendencies by realizing that technology alone will never replace on-the-ground activism, while also realizing that all grassroots activism needs to have a media component as well, whether it be through street theater, songs, or cell phone videos. It's not a question of if media should be used, but instead what media is most useful at a specific moment and how it might assist in ultimately fostering and making another world possible. Thank you for listening. 
help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.